Welcome to Reading and Ranting, where we read obsessively and rant about life in our 20s. I'm Mia. And I'm Carly. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health between the pages of our favorite author, Sarah J. Mass, and our own lives. This episode has underlying themes of grief, depression, anxiety, and other topics relating to mental health and wellness. If this is triggering for you, please feel empowered to skip this episode. We love you, besties. This is a safe space, and we're always here for you. Hopefully this goes without saying, but there will be spoilers ahead for the entirety of the Akatar series as well as Crescent City. Starting with our reading section, we're going to be talking about Nesta, our favorite character from Akatar, and Bryce from Crescent City. So delving back into the Sarah J. Mass universe. So we want to talk about how it connects to our own personal mental health journey because first and foremost, we've already mentioned to you guys that Nesta is our favorite character, but we hope that this episode shows you why we connect with her and her journey. Mm-hmm. So just to give you guys a little reminder about the plot and why Nesta hits rock bottom after losing her dad. It was really this culmination of how she coped with the grief of their family losing their money and their fortune and having to move into the small shack and struggling for years on end where Feyre was the one taking care of them. So it's mentioned a few times that Nesta's struggle was feeling like she needed their dad to fight for them. And so that's why they all leaned on Feyre so heavily because she was the one to step up. Um, And Nesta felt extremely protective of Elaine during this time. So a little bit of that oldest sister energy of feeling so hurt that no one is there to take care of you, but at the same time feeling like in your own way, you're trying to hold other people together. So chip on chip on the shoulder type situation. Yeah, definitely. Which I can relate to because when I hold a grudge, I hold a grudge. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm angry with you, I can hold on to that. She also they grew up a certain way where they had wealth and status and then it got quickly taken away, which I think as like a kid is really jarring, especially. But then, you know, I think it was also the dad's fault like didn't he he gambled away the money or something he took a risky investment yeah so I think part of the reason why he wasn't fighting for them is because I'm sure he was depressed and like guilty in his own right and then the mom passed away and it just basically like as an oldest sister I'm sure Nesta felt like it all should be on her shoulders but I don't think she really wanted that responsibility which is then why Pharaoh Pharaoh is the one to be taking care of them Um, But yeah, I think, you know, we didn't really get too much into the backstory, I think, like from Sarah's point of view and what she gave us. But if I had to imagine, I bet Nesta probably was not as cold shouldered as growing up. And then the second that they lost their fortune, I'm sure Mm -hmm. that's when shit hit the fan. So when we get to A Court of Wings and Ruin in the final battle scene, who shows up to defend his girls? And he's riding at the helm of his ship, the Nesta, alongside the ships, the Elaine and the Feyre. So Nesta- Sorry, that's just so cheesy to me, but I love it at the same time. I mean, that's fair. It's like you've always wanted a boat named after you. like Yeah, so Nesta has this, fi- this moment where she finally appreciates that her dad, in his own way, was fighting for them this whole time, and he finally stepped up in at the exact right moment that they needed him. And then that suddenly snatched away from her right in front of her eyes as she had the power to try and stop the King of Highburn. And, you know, I think her dad's final words to her saying that he's always loved her and he's always been proud of her 
and then watching the King of Highburn snap his neck and her being able to do nothing about it, that is, I think, the turning point for her grief where it eventually leads her to feel like she's at rock bottom at the start of A Court of Silver Flames. Mm-hmm. So... When we get into that, the grief of losing her dad drives her in A Court of Silver Flames to cope by getting drunk, having meaningless sex, and pushing away the inner circle and her family. She says repeatedly at the start of the book, I have my own lives and you have yours. Um, in before that, in A Court of Frost and Starlight, Feyre has to bribe her with her rent money to come to Winter Solstice celebrations and Feyre's basically or Nesta tells Feyre basically to fuck off it's also like I can't imagine what it feels like to be the older sister and like your life has fallen to shit and then your younger sister basically just has everything figured out fell in love with like their mate the love of their life like basically now it's just like so-called perfect life and then Nesta is just like what the fuck am I doing out here? And then on top of like losing her dad and then becoming like still not being used to being Faye, I think it all kind of just like cultivated. And you know, we forget that like Elaine too is also struggling. Like that girl couldn't even talk. Like she was basically mute, like having these like saying weird things that no one understood. But she was also like able, you were able to take care of her versus Nesto is like, basically removed herself into this apartment it was never to be seen again it wasn't until she charged like forgot how much but she charged all this money on a tab at that like tavern where farah and reese were stomped their foot down and were like this has to end so you know that that do happen sometimes like I mean, Mia and I sometimes go out and we're like, why are we spending money like we're millionaires when we're literally assisting account executives? But Nesta was like, I am unemployed and I'm spending Reese's money like he can suffer. Yeah. And so that's when that drives them to have this intervention. And I think that Nesta felt really, really betrayed because, and she got really defensive, obviously, that she pushed back and they're like, that's it, you're moving up to the House of Winds and you're going to train with Cassian and then you're going to work in the library. And I think this is almost akin to like having an intervention and checking someone into like a mental health therapy program or even like to the point of like almost a hospitalization. And that was what they were trying to do because they could see her hurting, but they had no idea how to reach her or help her. Yeah, and I, I think like at first... They were kind of like complacent in it where they were just letting her do her own thing, which is how mental health issues always begin. Like, even though it's might be noticeable because it's pretty new, like you kind of let that person, you know, continue doing it. And then once you realize that nothing's changing and if anything, it's actually getting worse. That's kind of when you put your foot down. I think that's what happened is her family and the inner circle finally realized that she wasn't going to get better. She wasn't trying to get better. And if anything, it was just getting worse. Like she was basically in like an alcoholic, like lost her virginity, suddenly was having sex with random men every night. And that's when they stomped the foot down. And that's yeah. I definitely agree with that. Like hospitalization comparison. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that, Nesta's background and characterization is Sarah J. Mass characterizes her as this, you know, everyone in the book is like, Nesta's always been different. 
Like, she just has, like, a strong will. Like, she, she saw through Tamlin's glamour. Like, he couldn't glamour her even mm-hmm. as a human. And so I think one quote that really kind of sums this up is that she writes, Nesta had become a wolf, armed herself with invisible teeth and claws, and learned to strike faster, deeper, and more lethally, had relished it. But when the time came to put away the wolf, she'd found it had devoured her too. I think this is just this idea of when you're hurting, you will hurt people before they can hurt you. And I really resonate with that, like as an anxious avoidant attachment style. Like Mm -hmm. I will absolutely pull away when I feel somebody trying to reach out or I will lash out to people trying to show that they care to care for me. And so I really, really related to that. And this is, again, this is at the start of her journey when she's at rock bottom. She's also in denial. And she, if you remember, she was trying to like attack everyone around her. Like she was attacking Farah. She was attacking the inner circle. I think it's because when you're hurting and it seems like the people around you aren't, you don't want to be the only one. So she was trying to hurt the people around her specifically Farah, who was, like, her suddenly perfect queen of, like, the Fae sister. So I couldn't even imagine, like, I know that if that happened to me, I would be the same exact way, just, like, a conniving bitch. Like, honestly, just because when you're so, like, desperate for feeling and you want to get people's attention, like, that's what you do. She Even though she was claiming she didn't want attention, like, all of her actions were screaming the opposite. Mm -hmm. She was basically rubbing in their faces that she was, like, not doing well. Yeah. And I think, too, that she, when she was hurting people, she did internalize all this guilt about hurting them, which just, like, made her feel worse than she already did. And, I mean, her self-image was, like, nothing. She hated herself. There's another quote where she says, I am worthless and I am nothing. I, and I hate everything that I am and I'm so, so tired. And so I think that that also really encapsulates how it can feel when you feel so alone and that you're the only person struggling is just like, you're just tired. Like when you're depressed and grieving, it it just feels like the world is weighing on you and you just can't seem to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I think that's any like mental health, like illness. It could be anything from depression to an eating disorder to like anything where you're just so tired of feeling the way you do, but it's your own brain and you just cannot escape. Like, and she could not escape her own brain. Like she couldn't escape her own guilt. Um, especially because I don't think she had like tried to confront it yet. Obviously, you know, as we go down her journey, that changed, but especially at the beginning, like she wasn't trying to think about everything that happened. She was just avoiding, like, like Mia said, her coping was, basically getting drunk and having sex to just not even address what had happened in, you know, during the war. Yeah. And so we see her, once she arrives at the House of Wind, she gets this goal in her mind of trying to make it down the stairs to the House of Wind, which is 10,000 stairs. She finally gives into training with Cassian and learns to like it. And she eventually makes, befriends Gwyn in the library while working in the library and goes on to also have a goal of getting the other priestesses out to training. And that was something that I think it was almost like a project that she felt ownership of to say, okay, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. How can I help other people also feel like this? Mm -hmm. I also love how 
that metaphor of her trying to make it down the 10,000 stairs from the house of wind back to Valeris, like the town, it started off as her being like, I need to get out of this house because I want to go and get a drink. I want to go to the bar. And it turned into her basically like trying to make it down the stairs to prove to herself that she could like it literally went from her being like I'm getting out of here and I'm getting trashed and then she was like training getting strong and realizing I want this to be my goal because if I accomplish this I can accomplish anything yeah and so I think we see her trying to develop these healthy coping skills where we see her working out and she notices and Cassian notices yeah like the workouts help me too like staying physically fit which is obviously an important part of taking care of your mental well-being she also discovers mind stilling exercises which is basically I think a form of meditation where she practices every night for 10 minutes trying to clear her mind of you know anything and she realizes that it's really hard but Gwen coaches her through it and says, you just have to let the thoughts like come in and then roll out, which is something that I really related to when I first started meditation. She also, obviously, we know our girl is a smut reader. Mm. So she's um, reading to cope and then finally making friends of her own and building relationships of her own with Gwen and Emery um, was Mm -hmm. obviously very important for her. Yeah, especially because the inner circle, it's like, yeah, they might have been friends with the the Archeron sisters because of Farah, but they're Farah's friends first. So like Nesta basically making these two friends on her own is so important. Cause we, you know, as we've talked about in our past episodes, who's gonna like listen and bring you up and the like who is gonna be the people for you? It's gonna be your girlfriends. Like not your boyfriend, maybe not even family, your girlfriends. They will be there for you. And I think too, there's a point when they're having their cutesy little sleepover in the house of wind and they finally start to open up to each other a little bit about, you know, their traumas and their individual backgrounds and they just listen and they empower each other and that's exactly I think how it feels in real life when you mm-hmm. have strong female friendships. Oh, we love. And on top of that, we know that this book centers a lot about Cassian and Nesta's relationship and them basically finding out that, or Cassian knows, but Nesta coming to terms with the fact that Cassian is her mate. But something I love about their relationship, but not to compare them to Farah and Reese, but I will say, like, if we remember in the first book of Akatar, Farah goes through the trials underneath the mountain and she certainly basically dies and then survives and becomes a fae and she goes back to living with tamlin and is extremely depressed like she loses a lot of weight like can't eat and then reese brings her back to valaris and basically helps her like get through her depression and gain back weight and you know it's almost like this trope of like the man coming in and like saving her and her being her like you know prince but i like how cassian like he was there for her and he supported her and yeah, he also went through a lot of shit, like having to be close to Nesta when she basically wanted to tear everyone around her down. But he wasn't the one that saved her in the end. Like she saved herself. Like she was able to find redemption and like fix her own mental health on her own. Yes, she had the support of Cassie and then her other people in her life, but it wasn't like he came in and all of a sudden she was just like fine. And I think that's why I get so upset when people think like Cassian is just like the brute warrior type vibe because he's actually so emotionally intelligent when you really look at how he supports Nesta in the books. And I think that that's what exactly what you were saying, Carly, at the point that Nesta finally makes it down the 10,000 steps, which again, symbolic because 
at first it was to go get drunk again just out of spite then it was a goal just to get down to prove herself that she could and eventually the time that she makes it down is when she goes and tells Feyre that the pregnancy is going to kill her Mm-hmm. and that's when Cassian takes her out, takes her hiking, and Nesta hates herself so much that she literally dehydrates herself to the point of collapse, and Cassian and her finally make it to the side of the lake, and Nesta just has her come-to-Jesus moment of breaking down, and Cassian is just there for her. He just sits with her while she cries. She just sits and sobs, and Cassian just thinks to himself, he'd be here for her no matter what. Anything that he she could throw at him, he would take, but... He knew, and I think he says this almost word for word, that he knew that he couldn't save herself, like, or he couldn't save her, and she needed to save herself. No one could do this, pull her out of it, except for herself. Exactly. I mean, she even said, this is another quote, she said, I don't know how to fix myself, and Cassian said, there's nothing broken to be fixed. I will say, this book turned me into a Cassian girl. We've already talked about how mm-hmm. Kylie is an Azrael girl, but I... I'm a Cassian, Cassian girl, too. Through. I feel like we haven't seen enough of Az for sure. me to really be, like, an Az girl, but in terms of looks, I think I'd be the most attracted to Az. But in terms of people, I definitely like him more than Reese. Mm-hmm. So, like, Cassian all the yeah, way, girl. Too. And I think we would just want to end this with saying that once... Nesta has her moment at the lake and on the mountain and she goes through the blood rite. Her kind of ending redemption is coming back and giving up her powers and finding the beauty in life and knowing that life is worth living. So while she's bargaining with the mother and her spirit to save Feyre and she goes, I would give up anything, she realizes that the world is beautiful and she was grateful to be in it, to be alive, to be here to see this. And she cried because joy was a miracle. And so I think that that's something where you've hit that rock bottom. And even as you're trying to rise out of it and working and clawing your way, um, it's never going to be linear. But I think once you hit that realization that life is worth living and you can build a life worth living, which is a phrase that I live by, Mm -hmm. it's just a really powerful moment. And to conclude, you also noticed that she wasn't official with Cassian until the end. And that's because she finally loved herself enough to be in a relationship. Because she couldn't be with him when she was so self-hating. And she even told Cassian that to his face. She was like, "You, I can't be your mate. I can't be with you because denying you is my punishment to myself. Exactly. On to our other mental health queen, part of the Sarah J. Mass universe, we have Bryce from Crescent City. We know she's the OG party girl, and we find out, I think it was in the first book, that even though, yes, she was a crazy partier, she loved it, she really only partied that hard because she wanted to fit in with her friends, and it was the one time where she felt like her and her friends were all against the world together because she kind of felt like a failure compared to them because we had Danica who was the leader of the wolf pack and she was like super powerful and then Juniper is this amazing um ballerina and so she kind of just felt like she had no purpose in life and no skills because she worked at that art gallery was just an assistant like was a ballerina but obviously not as good as Juniper like she wasn't a lead or anything so she was just trying to figure herself out but once Danica and the pack of wolves died she completely 180 isolated stopped partying and that's when her kind of like deep dive depression hitting rock bottom started even though you would think that seems like she got her life 
more together. She's not partying anymore. She's not doing crazy drugs. But it was the opposite because she just completely isolated herself from any, like, socialization or the society. Yeah, and I think because Crescent City is just a little bit more modern, I see Bryce's coping skills as pretty realistic where once she is living alone um, in her apartment, she literally goes to work. She works six days a week. She goes on runs, and then she comes home, watches trash TV, cuddles with her pet Cyrix, and yeah. eats, like, takeout. Why is that just, like, the the college to post-grad depression, going from, like, partying to working and just coming home, watching TV, and falling into bed? Yeah. And yeah. so because she was isolating and avoiding, you know, all of that grief because it just hurt too much to think about Danica, when they start to investigate the murders and she finds out that Danica had more secrets and she didn't know her as well as she thought she did. Figuring out the murders, I mean, she says over and over that she just needs to know. And that's Mm -hmm. her way of, like, finally facing the grief that she was feeling. Yeah, but for a while, like, she didn't open up to anyone about her grief. Like, it's not like she had a therapist. Um, not sure if they have therapists in the Crescent City world, even though it, like No, said, they do. I was gonna, it is modern, so they probably Well, because Juniper tells her, go to therapy, it'll help you. And Bryce yeah. is like, nah. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that for her. But yeah, like, she wouldn't accept help from anyone. She wouldn't even tell her parents, especially her mom, who she's super close with, what she was going through. She wouldn't tell her brother. So she was just completely isolated, which is, like, basically something that happens a lot of the time when you're depressed is you don't want to talk to other people because you don't want them to know how depressed you are. It's like you basically have to put on this facade because it's almost like embarrassing to be depressed and lonely and anxious. So you just like don't want to see anyone because it's so much easier to isolate than to have to like pretend in front of people. Yeah. And so through it all, the one friend that she did have was Lehaba in the gallery, my favorite little fire sprite. And she Lahaba was the one to stick by Bryce even when Bryce was mean to her. I mean, there's moments when Lahaba says, You're being mean, Bryce, like mm-hmm. and Bryce was like, Sorry for snapping at you, like whatever, whatever. And I will just say that Lahaba's sacrifice scene got me, I think, more than any other scene in the entire Sarah J. Maas universe. I, maybe some with Aelin and Throne no, of Glass. No, the cereal. The that. cereal. I but... did cry. Well, I was screaming, crying, throwing up, reading Lahaba's death, death scene mm-hmm. for the second time. But then Bryce, like, she basically gets revenge on her. She kills... Micah. Yeah, and she, like, goes goes ham. But that's really the first time that she, like, steps up and is, well, like, so, protecting herself and everything. Yeah, I well, so I think the thing is that Le- Bryce still meant so much to Lehaba, and that's the people who stick by you when you're struggling are important, and she loved her so much that she sacrificed herself. But as Bryce is realizing what she's about to do, Bryce tells her, you're the person I don't need to explain myself to, not when it matters. You see everything I am, and you don't run away from it. And I just think that that sentiment of having the friends who will stick by you no matter what, even when you're trying to push them away, even when you're in, like, the darkest moments, um, or even just, like, sometimes when you're just kind of going through it, like, you'll be a little snappy, you'll be a little rude, like, whatever, Mm. like, I just think that's so realistic, and actually, it broke my heart. I know, and Danica had been that person for her, but I think she also, like, was going through a completely different kind of, like, depression, like, obviously, Danica got, Danica got murdered, 
she felt so much guilt because basically she was trashed the night and couldn't do anything to protect her friends. But then when she realized that Danica had actually been hiding a lot from her, I think then it was just like a second wave of like depression and confusion of her being like, I didn't even know my best friend as, as well as I thought I did. And she can't do anything about it because Danica is not alive anymore. So she couldn't even confront her. So I think it's really interesting how even though there was like a first point that catapulted her into like this mental health journey it kept continuing into different points like it wasn't just like Danica died and then she was at rock bottom and then climbed up like there were all these different hurdles which is just like true to life like it's never going to be completely linear you or you're going to like get better and then maybe something else will happen and then you'll get down a couple notches but I really liked that it was kind of this like journey ongoing and not just her basically being like I'm really depressed and now I'm fine yeah And so to wrap it all up, I don't want to get too meta, but Bryce, you know, kind of has this realization eventually where they say, that's the point of it, Bryce, of life, to live, to love, knowing that it might all vanish tomorrow. It makes everything that much more precious. And there's another kind of recurring metaphor in the Crescent City universe, which is memento mori, remember that you will die. And I think knowing what grief is truly, what it means to lose somebody, it does remind you that life is precious and life is short. And so loving people fiercely and being grateful for your life is one of the most powerful feelings and things to come to terms with when you are grieving. And it's not easy and it takes time and it's hard to accept once you've lost somebody because it feels like your part of you has also died. And Mm -hmm. I just think that that kind of reminder is like it it was really interesting when I was reading that in Crescent City because of Bryce's loss of Danica and then there's this recurring theme that of you loss. need to remember mm-hmm. yeah um of loss and death and it's just it's cyclical it's life especially like the first light second light situation mm-hmm. so thought that was quite interesting yes very beautiful our rant today, we're sticking to the topic of mental health and we're going to, talk, going to be talking about me and I's own journey in mental health and hopefully some of you guys can relate to this and if anyone ever wants to send in questions about mental health or wants to tell a story, like please hit us up on our TikTok, on our email, we'll provide that at the end of the episode, but we're always here for you besties. And something that I want to talk about, which I think has been kind of a recurring theme in my life is depression and anxiety. We know now being older, like everyone goes through depressive periods and struggles at some point in their life with anxiety. Yes, there's going to be people that struggle less, but I think everyone at one point will struggle with this. And I know that I'm really happy that now mental health, it's still not completely normalized, but it's a lot more normalized in everyday conversation than it was even when I was in high school that wasn't that long ago but I think mental health was so little taboo and high school is when my mental health really plummeted and began kind of my mental health journey like I truly don't think I really overcame that journey I'm still on it but I didn't really overcome it until probably later in college this is years and years and years of struggling but I never talked to any of my close friends about it just because I didn't want them to know how low I was because I was almost embarrassed. And especially when you're not open about mental health with the people around you, 
it's like, it almost seems like you're alone. No one else around you is struggling. They, everyone seems happy. Everyone seems joyful. I remember think, thinking, oh, so many of my friends seem so happy and joyful all the time. Their lives must be perfect. And why do I feel this way? And they don't. Now I realize a lot of people, even if they seem happy, are going through something. But I know it was really hard to grow up during that time period. I'm curious what you think, Mia, but I especially am not a very open person if I you know, don't feel comfortable with you, but I especially felt uncomfortable with mental health. And now I've overcome a long way. Like Mia and I, even when we first met, we obviously connected really quickly, but we were talking about mental health, like second hangout. Meanwhile, I couldn't even talk about my mental health journeys with my friends in high school who I've been friends with for years and years and years. Yeah, I definitely think part of it is that being in high school, I know that while I was going through a really tough time, being so young, not having the prefrontal cortex development, mm-hmm. it felt so, so, so world shattering because mm-hmm. it's kind of that first hard step in life out of childhood. And I exactly. do think hard to open up to friends about it and hard for friends to understand because we're just young. Like we're just experiencing life for the first time. Yeah. And it's just, it's so hard. And so I think that that was even harder for me as a teenager because I felt so alone and locked up in my own situation. Also, I think being young, it's like the things that are so depressing and anxiety inducing, you might look back and be like, wow, that was so like out of proportion. I was so overdramatic. But like you said, Mia, like at the time it feels world shattering like it's all you can think about I just remember like my brain would not quiet it was like an everyday situation of just being like miserable and I kind of was a Bryce where especially when I got first introduced to drinking I think the first time I drank I was like 14 15 and I just loved how drinking it just made me forget about everything that like plagued my everyday thoughts because it just makes you like drunk and you don't remember shit and you know, I definitely related to Bryce from that, being the party girl. I think, you know, it's a little different because her depression and grief made her the anti-party girl, but she also used partying in the beginning to deal with, like, some of her unresolved feelings about herself, which is pretty much what I was doing. Yeah. I was the exact same way. I was the girly at the party blacking out and crying in the bathtub. Exactly. (laughs) I think... I think for the first year of drinking, it was rare for me to not cry from being drunk. And honestly, if I think back, it's like, I think it's because I was so closed off emotionally and didn't talk to anyone that it's like when you're drunk and your inhibitions are lower, you just explode because you're like, don't know, your body doesn't know what to do with it. You've been holding it in for so long. So that would definitely happen to me. I was the drunk crier, which is so embarrassing to admit now, especially because I never cry when I'm drunk anymore. (laughs) It's not embarrassing. I was the exact same way. Yeah. Just another way that our high school experiences, experiences were similar. Yeah, in the same way, the same way we're the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but especially with mental health too, like I remember in high school, I didn't really have a lot of boy experiences. And this was something, especially just like from family and myself, I had a lot of pressure on myself because of this, which made it obviously a point of contention. So it was really hard to deal with it. And I always thought that the second I got a boyfriend, like, my life would be solved. Like, all my mental health issues, a lot of which didn't have to do with boys at all, but I was like, all my mental health issues, once I get a boyfriend, will be solved. Not true at all. You get a boyfriend, it's great, like, you might love that person, but they're not going to solve your mental health issues because you realize actually when you get in a relationship, you're taking on the mental health of the completely other person and you need to be okay enough in your 
self. Like you need to love yourself enough to also love that person and love them through the highs and the lows. So that was a learning curve for me, like realizing when I'm in a relationship, I'm still going to feel depressed. I'm still going to feel anxious sometimes. I'm still going to feel lonely. And even having that person, yes, they might be supportive, but it's not going to like fix everything overnight. It's not going to fix everything at all. Yeah. Um, And I think too, especially the idea of like taking on someone else's mental health at the opposite when it is healthy and you choose to stick by that person also setting boundaries in relationships and knowing when you know I'll be like hey babe like I'm at 20% today and like if he's Mm -hmm. like cool I've got it like I'm at 100 I'll do you know xyz chores or errands around the house and versus like realizing like hey we're both on a low swing like this is gonna be tough but we'll get through it like forgive me if I'm a little grouchy today forgive Mm -hmm. me if you know these couple weeks at work have been really stressful like I'm not trying to take it out on you I think it's even relationships it's also like friendships like I know that I've had some friendships end because we were both too mentally unwell to be there for each other and also if you're already mentally unwell being around someone who's also like that if not worse is just triggering and it's sad but it's like the reality I think the most successful friendships relationships is when you can kind of like balance it out but I know like I have friends from high school where we kind of just fell out because neither of us were doing well and our relationship was almost like toxic because we were kind of like feeding off of each other or you have the situation where you're the only mentally unwell one and you're kind of like projecting everything onto that person and they can't really take it anymore which I think definitely has happened to me as well unfortunately I think, Mia, this is something where you can talk about this, and I'm really curious and, like, excited to listen to you talk about it, because I think it'll be really educational to a lot of our listeners, but do you want to talk about grief? Yeah, so I want to talk about grief and kind of how I connect to both Nesta and Bryce with that, too, Um, and I just want to say, like, this is my own personal experience, and everyone everyone's situation when you've lost someone in your life is going to be completely unique but just to share a little bit about mine if you relate to this at all again like we're here for you besties this is a safe space so when I was 16 my mom was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and that was to this day the most obviously difficult thing that I've ever had to face and especially again being in high school and being young I think it was such a shock because I just simply had did not have the tools to deal with it. And I was I felt like I was mourning her. And this is something that I think is unique to terminal illnesses um, versus potentially losing someone suddenly or losing someone to old age um, or something like that is that I was mourning her while she was still alive and this is where my depression just hit me like a truck and it was really hard but luckily I did have the support system that was able to try and get me the help that I needed but it took a long time for that to actually start to make an impact so I had a really long year where really close to my mom's like official terminal diagnosis it was probably three months where I was drinking all the time self-medicating and I want to say these are not healthy coping skills but very valid and realistic and if you've ever felt this way you know my heart goes out to you and I, I want you to know that there are ways to 
cope healthily. Cope healthily. And yeah. it's the, the negative coping skills might not go away, but the choice to continually choose the positive ones over the mm. negative ones. The negative coping skills are so easy and the, the healthy ones are not, but in the long run, like the healthy will always be better yeah. than the negative. Exactly. And so I think one of the things that I want to say is that grief definitely comes in waves and it sounds really, really cheesy, but time really does help. And so I think it was interesting because like for Bryce, there's this time jump of two years where we see her in the moments immediately after losing Danica and then two years later when she's, you know, somewhat pulled herself back together but is obviously still grieving. And that's the thing is that time might help but I don't think it necessarily heals all wounds because it will always be there it will always be part of you and some days it'll be more manageable and some days it hits you harder and other days I can think back on my mom with only happy memories but at the very beginning it felt so incredibly overwhelming um the day that she did pass away I felt like this crushing weight of sadness and grief and anger just literally coming down onto me and just felt like there were bricks on my chest that I just could not deal with. And through working through therapy, um, I was able to come to terms with those emotions and kind of have this coping skill of like riding the wave and just like acknowledging what my emotions were while also, like I said, continually trying to choose the positive coping skills. And like we said, healing is not linear absolutely there were times that I fell you know down back into a bit of a depressive episode versus times where I felt like I was consistently making positive progress but again it will always be there when you lose someone and sometimes you just have to take it day by day and that's the only answer and I think something else that I want to say is that when you are feeling that grief even years later. Anniversaries and memories can be extremely triggering. And sometimes it's kind of unconsciously and just psychologically something that it brings up for you. And so I really love the scene in Crescent City where Bryce spends Danica's birthday eating like their favorite chocolate treats um, by the lake because they would always go there. And so something for me now is that anniversaries or the person's birthday at first were really hard days because it felt like just a reminder of how much you wouldn't be celebrating their life anymore and also how many milestones they're missing like I can't tell you the amount of times that I've imagined my mom not being at my she wasn't at my college graduation she wasn't at my wedding like she's not gonna see me have her first grandchild and so those things are just obviously reminders of the loss, but at the same time, when you do something to honor that person on that day, I just think it like reminds you of the love and the happiness that you did have with that person because when you're so sad and you're grieving something, it means that there was so much love there. Yeah. I can't even imagine going through that and it sounds like you have a lot of healthy coping mechanisms and it's just like, I think anyone that has gone through a loss at that age it's always like really interesting to see how they deal with it and just like admirable I know that that's weird to say because we'll all have to go through a loss of a parent one day but I know in my life like I've lost grandparents and I've you know lost some 
people I know, like maybe my parents, close friends, or even like some people I know that are my age, but I have not yet had that like really close hit to home loss. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because it makes me wonder like when that day one day comes, hopefully not anytime soon, but when that one day one day comes, like I want to take in what you just said and do that because, you know, like we said, the negative coping and that weight on your chest. I think that weight on the chest, like that can apply to a lot of people. I remember even like in my most depressed days, it's like the weight on your chest, it just makes you feel like you literally cannot take another step. You cannot go on, but clearly life goes on and you're here and I'm sure your mom it's really happy that you're making this podcast and is going to listen. I hope so. I yeah. think she'd be proud. Mm-hmm. So again, it's kind of that idea that life is cyclical and loss is part of life and having the reminder, memento mori, remember that you will die, but also remember that you will lose people around you. That's an inevitability of life. Like Carly was saying, there will come a time when you lose your grandparents, you lose your parents, you lose friends. Um, And so I think just for me, having experienced already such a close encounter with death, again, I've just realized how short and special life is, and I'm Mm going to do everything in my power to hold on to love and gratitude and happiness, even through the lows, because there's always going to be lows, and there's always going to be highs. I think just to conclude, like, we can quickly touch on loneliness. I think loneliness has to do with all these emotions, like depression, anxiety, grief like you're going to be lonely when you're struggling with this but outside of it relating to any other like mental illness I think just when I felt lonely it's something where it's like I'm in a room surrounded by people and I've never felt more alone and I think my loneliness at least traces back to maybe like feeling misunderstood and feeling like there's no one in my life to support me because I've definitely even had therapy sessions where I've been like I have friends I have family Maybe I have a significant other, maybe I don't, but I still feel like unsupported because I'm just someone where I'm super independent and like, but then I feel like I can't support myself. So it's just a super weird feeling, but loneliness is such like a cycle because I think you're in society, you feel lonely, even surrounded by people and then you isolate, but then you feel even more alone and worse because you're all by yourself. So then you go back out into society and it just circles again, again, and again. And I think like out of everything I've, felt like depression anxiety like loneliness is one of the worst like that is the worst feeling it's not fun for anyone and I think something that's helped me at least is like to be okay with being alone because even though yeah loneliness like the word you're thinking okay loneliness that means being alone but it's not necessarily being alone I think it's more of like a feeling because like I said like you can be surrounded by people and still be lonely so something I do that really helps is just be like okay I'm okay with being alone and I'll go run an errand and I'll just like enjoy myself and my own company and it's something I still struggle with like I have still yet to take myself out to like a really nice dinner date just me myself and I and be like face my loneliness and face being a like being alone and being okay with myself but it's the best way to combat just because loneliness is definitely like at least for me one of the worst feelings out there and if you've ever dealt with it like I completely sympathize yeah and so I think the thing that I want to end on is you know we've mentioned like negative coping skills positive coping skills but these are going to look different for every person and so I would just so encourage you to 
do the work, whether it's in therapy, whether it's on your own, whether it's picking up a Brene Brown book. Mm-hmm. Um, picking love, up love that bestie. Sarah J. Mass and fantasy books. Because yeah. you know that me and I healed and coped with reading probably a a little too much but we'll go into how coping it doesn't look the same for everyone sometimes you do too much coping sometimes you do too little no one is perfect yeah and it's never going to be perfect but again it's like whether you're facing it head-on whether you're letting it wash over you whether you're trying to watch your negative thoughts float by on a cloud and just Mm -hmm. let them wash away it's all going to look different and it's different for different emotions. Like we said, for anger, it might be one thing and for sadness, it might be another, but getting to the root of that for yourself um, and, and doing that work, which is so hard. And again, it's a constant, constant choice to make the positive coping skills your priority over the negative ones. It's really powerful. And so again, if you're struggling with anything, completely hope that you can take this to heart. On the next episode of Reading and Ranting, we're going to be talking about our favorite book tropes and giving some of our recommendations for each trope and, of course, ranting about life and our shitty financial decisions. We're always looking for book recs, so if you have a suggestion, shoot us a DM on TikTok at readingandrantingpod or email readingandrantingpod at gmail.com. Happy reading. Until next time, besties.